and that's what we're going to talk about now. Uh, we are returning to our series in Ephesians. The, the same heart of the Jesus that we serve and that we trust and that we rely on, uh, that we've seen in John 11 and Revelation 5 uh, and in Hebrews 2, is the heart that is expressed here in a context that is very, very practical and everyday and on the ground. And we need that heart both for the big, life-jarring fears that we face and for our daily contexts. I'm thankful that for most of us at Grace, uh, our, our daily context in terms of our work has not changed significantly. I'm very thankful that, that we're experiencing at Grace uh, a, a very low level of job loss. I know some people have experienced a reduction in hours or a loss of job, and we certainly want to ask for the Lord's help in those situations. And at the same time, as a church, we have a, a, a lot to be grateful for, uh, that most people who are working are still working, and that's not by any means the case everywhere. So we have much to be thankful for, and we have a context in which to apply Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, which is our text this morning. <clears throat> the very first word of this text, which I'll read in a minute, is the word slaves. And anytime that word shows up, uh, it brings with it necessarily a lot of thorny questions, a lot of questions about what does this mean, why is this in here? <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm going to pass by the opportunity to interact with those thorny questions this morning. I have done that to some degree in previous passages that deal with the same sort of life context. And so if you're interested, one place where that is done is in, <clears throat> excuse me, in one of the messages from the Colossians series, this is the message from August 19th of 2018. It's on the website. It's called The Gospel for Monday, Part 2. And so if you're interested in, in hearing some of these questions about how ought we to think about slavery as an institution, uh, how, does it, how did slavery in the first century differ from slavery in pre-Civil War United States? Some of that is uh, dealt with there. And if you have further questions, I am glad to talk with you <clears throat> about them. <clears throat> the fact remains that there are some aspects of what happened in, and it appears that our Zoom meeting has crashed, so if you would give me just one second. I hope that we have not utterly lost our Zoom crowd, um, but I don't have time to troubleshoot it right now. When it comes to the question of how slavery has so often worked in the world, there is, uh, we all know, a completely illegitimate aspect to the way slavery has worked. And I think when you get down to the core of what was broken, what was not legitimate, what ought not to have happened, at the very core is an attitude that says uh, to somebody that, that I see as a slave, that says, I, I deserve something better than you because I am 
better than you. An attitude of entitlement and superiority. I, I deserve better than you because I am better than you. Did we lose our internet altogether? we will push forward. That is what infected slavery uh, at the very core and expressed itself in many illegitimate ways in pre-Civil War America. Uh, That is no doubt what infected uh, the, the way that slavery worked in the Roman Empire. At the same time, there was something that happened within those, essentially those work relationships that still happens within work relationships today that is legitimate, that that does stay the same. And that is the idea that some people have more economic influence over other people than others do. In other words, some people have more money and more power and more influence and have the opportunity to use it, and other people don't have the same level of influence. We, we experience that even today. Uh, some people have uh, a great deal of resources, a great deal of social connection. Uh, they were born into a place where their situation was not compromised. And other people don't have as many resources. Other people don't have as many choices in terms of where they might work. And it appears from the Bible that while there is a love of neighbor that seeks to do the greatest good for as many people as possible, it's not primarily Jesus' goal to change the world now in such a way that everyone's situation is exactly the same. We should, it seems, have an expectation that there will be an ongoing sense in which some people will have more resources than other people have. And other people will have fewer resources. Some people will have more choices. And other people will have fewer. And that is exactly the place where Jesus meets us this morning with this passage. He has come to rescue and remake people within those contexts. To rescue and remake people who have more resources and more choices and to rescue and remake people who have fewer resources and fewer choices. His goal is not mainly sameness, but new goals for everyone in every situation. In in our world, we often experience both. So you might ask the question, as we enter this passage, where do you have economic influence over someone else? Where do you have more resources that gives you more choices that allows you to, in one sense or another, exercise control over another person? Where does somebody have that opportunity to do that with you? Where does somebody, because of what they have or because of their influence, uh, where does that enable them to make choices for you? Maybe you experience both, even in your own job we are going to find that really the, the, the teaching that Paul gives to this group that he refers to as slaves and the teaching that he gives to the group that he refers to as masters, that teaching applies to both of us, to, to both groups, to people that experience both realities 
when he speaks to slaves, he's going to speak in terms of attitude. He's going to speak in terms of audience. He's going to speak in terms of anticipation. He's going to say to slaves, what is it that you want? Attitude. He's going to say, who are you doing it for? That's audience. And then he's going to speak to their anticipation, say, what do you expect? And he's, he's going to speak in basically the same categories to masters as well. We're going to find that there is, there, there is a great equalizing force in the gospel that puts those in the temporary position of master, those in the temporary position of slave, even in very small ways, takes them all and puts them all in the same place together. And so he speaks to them in the same ways. In both cases, he's going to ground the instruction that he gives in something that both groups can know. Both times, he's going to say, do this knowing that. And when he gives the thing they're supposed to know, he's very clear that the thing they need to know is for everyone. The thing servants need to know is for everyone. The thing masters need to know is for everyone. So this is for everyone. This is for you in your positions of economic influence. And this is for you when you're in a position of being economically influenced by someone else. When somebody else has the ability to control you because they have more. So this is where we're going in Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9. I'm going to read it now. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you take this word and help us to receive for us, what you have for us in it. Help us to handle it faithfully, both in interpretation and in the way that we live it out. Empower us by your Spirit to receive it well. In Jesus' name, amen. When Paul addresses slaves, those who are in a position of really being controlled by someone else, uh, in a way that is, is held up by the laws of the day. He speaks to people who were not considered to have a great deal of dignity, and yet he dignifies them. He says, you matter. And he does this in a couple different ways. Right out of the gate, he, he, he says to slaves, you matter, <clears throat> first simply by speaking to them. This pattern of having a list of relationships uh, and the way those relationships should work, husbands, wives, parents, children, uh, slaves, masters. Uh, this was sometimes referred to as the household code, and this pattern showed up in other kinds of literature at the time as well. 
And evidently, slaves weren't necessarily even addressed in these household codes. Uh, They weren't perhaps considered worthy of uh, being addressed. And Paul, inspired by God, dignifies slaves by speaking directly to them. He says, you matter. And when he speaks to them, he doesn't speak in a way that is merely convenient for masters by saying, let's get slaves programmed to be ready to produce as much as we can get them to produce for as little cost as possible. When he addresses them, he addresses their minds and their wills. He, he acknowledges them as thinking, wanting people. And their thinking and their wanting matters. And as he speaks to uh, the issue of what they want, it might be really natural for people to look at slaves and to say, what difference does it make what they want? It's not their job to want, it's their job to get things done. And that's not the way Jesus looks at slaves. Jesus says what you think and what you want as a person matters. He acknowledges it, and here and by his work, he comes to transform what people in the position of slave think and want, because what they think and want matters. So he speaks first to attitude. Here you are, you're in a position of being under someone else's control. If you're a slave, then you are, in one sense, completely under someone else's control. And so, what comes naturally to you in terms of attitude? What kind of attitude shows up naturally? Why why are you here? Well, in one sense, you're here because you can't You don't have any other choice. But what are you trying to accomplish while you're here? What do you want while you're here? What would come naturally for me if I were in that position would be to say, I'm I'm here for me. I I work each day, even though I work under a a position that's so deeply compromised, I'm trying to get what I can for myself. Can't get much, but I'll get what I can, and that's what I'm here for. That, that natural attitude that comes naturally both to slaves and to masters and everyone in between, that I'm here to get what I can for myself, is an attitude that results in fear and trembling. Because it's not a very secure attitude. It results in fear and trembling, a sense of real insecurity. Paul refers to fear and trembling here, but he's not referring to that kind of fear and trembling. He's referring to a very different kind. He he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And he's referring to a very different kind of fear and trembling. A kind that gets fleshed out as we look at the different attitude markers within this passage. You see those attitude markers scattered throughout uh, verses 5 through 8, woven carefully through what Paul says to slaves. This kind of fear and trembling is a fear and trembling that's characterized, verse 5, by a sincere heart. By a sincere heart. It's a fear and trembling that is characterized, in verse 7, with a good will. So this is a kind of fear and trembling that's not insecure about what's going to happen to me. This is a fear and trembling that takes 
very, very seriously the desire to do good for others, a real desire to do good for others. So the, the, the attitude could be summarized in this way. Serve others with serious, sincere, intentional goodwill. Make a big deal out of doing what you can to benefit other people. Be asking the question, as long as you're here, even in this position, this position that maybe feels like it doesn't matter, that maybe feels like you're just part of a big machine, be asking the question, how how can I make something better for someone else? Specifically, how can I make something better for the person that I answer to in this work relationship? In this case, to this person that's called my master. Part of the good news is that everything qualifies. No matter what your assignment is, you probably didn't choose what your assignment was. You probably didn't get to pick. And so you may be doing something that feels like it really doesn't matter at all. You just have to do it to survive. But all of it falls within the realm of serious, sincere, intentional goodwill to benefit another. A slave might be in charge of cleaning out cattle stalls. They might be in charge of educating children, maybe making meals, maybe managing family accounts. Those in the position of slaves did many different things in the Roman Empire, and all of them qualify. No matter how badly they're looked down upon, all of them under Christ, really fulfill what Proverbs 14, 23 says. In all toil, there is profit. There is something of real and genuine value, something that expresses the image of God in everything that's done for the good of someone else. There's dignity here. And so, the call to, to everyone who's in an economic position of serving someone else is to say, serve others with serious, sincere, intentional good will. How can I enrich someone else? How would I want this thing to work for someone else? This applies to us today as well. Those of you who are engineers, who are in manufacturing, who are in law, uh, certainly those of you who are in medicine, uh, I hope I hope that if you're in the field of medicine, this is especially clear to you right now, that your work really matters. If you're in the field of technology, to be asking the question, if you're developing software or a website or an app, to be asking the question, if I were the one using this software and I didn't know all the insides of it and I didn't understand from the beginning how it worked, how would I want this to work as an end user? And how can I do my best to put this product together in such a way that it makes somebody's day even a little bit better? Sincere, intentional goodwill. That's for us today. Now, if you, especially if you work in a, in a really large corporate environment, it's really easy for the dignity of your work to get lost, to feel like you are just part of a, a very small part of a very large machine, and really the best thing that's left for you is to show up, do your task, get a paycheck, and go home. Your, the dignity of your work is not 
lost. And one of the things we have to ask in order to remember that is, well, who's watching? Because it might feel like nobody's watching, like nobody really pays attention. You're a number in a spreadsheet, and it doesn't really matter to a person. And it does, does matter to a person. What comes naturally in these employment relationships is, is to ask the question, who can I see and what do they want to see? And sometimes it feels like I, I, I can't give that to them. Sometimes it feels like, well, maybe I can. And so it's natural to specialize in what Paul refers to in verse 6 as I service as people pleasers. To pay attention to those who can see me and ask, how can I give them what they want to see? And sometimes that works. Sometimes it feels like, you know what, I've hit the bullseye, and it's, it feels really gratifying uh, to be able to please someone else, to please a boss, maybe to please an upper manager. It feels like this is exactly what I'm here for. And there sometimes is something legitimate to somebody acknowledging, you've done a good job. But if my aim, my end aim is to please people, I run into problems immediately. Here's maybe the picture for us to have in mind when it comes to the dangers of people-pleasing. Uh, several years ago when I was, when I was uh, at a church in Fort Dodge, uh, one of the things that I'd do with some of the other younger guys at church is we would have what was called men's night. And it was pretty typical. We'd get together. We'd have a good time together, uh, play a variety of, of games together. So we played darts together. And, of course, to hit a bullseye was, was wonderful gratifying, even in the moment. One of the things that we, we never really thought to do was to have somebody pick up the dartboard and move around with it. Now, there probably were good reasons that we didn't think to do that. Walking around with a moving dartboard when you're playing darts, imagine trying to throw darts at that moving dartboard. That's exactly what we're doing when we are living to please another person that we can see. It's a moving target because your boss may have been in a really good mood yesterday, and when you did something fairly well, your boss may have acknowledged it and praised it and celebrated it. And today, you come in, and your boss was up half the night with a sick child, and he comes in or she comes in grumpy, and you do exactly the same thing you did yesterday and he or she only finds fault with it. It's a moving target. It's not predictable. Even in good bosses, it's a moving target. But of course, this is not only a moving target. I suppose when we were playing darts, we could have had a moving target, and somebody could have gotten really creative and said, let's play full contact darts as well. So not only are you throwing at a moving target, but we're going to have somebody try to tackle you while you throw. Sometimes that's part of our experience when we try to please people as well because our peers, our co-workers, are not always on our side when it comes to us pleasing someone else. Sometimes it feels like it's in their interest to oppose our goal of pleasing our manager, our boss. And so they may even do things to intentionally get in the way. So people-pleasing becomes full contact darts with a moving target. And then there's me. Maybe yesterday I was on top of my game, and today I was the one that was up half the night with a sick child. And so people-pleasing becomes 
darts with a moving target, full contact, while I feel like I'm on Benadryl. And this becomes very, very dangerous. And so is people-pleasing when the person that I am trying to please is merely somebody that I can see. That's not good news. But there is good news. There's good news in what Paul tells slaves here. Paul tells slaves, don't don't specialize in eye service as people pleasers, but serve, verse 5, as you would Christ. Verse 6, as servants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. doesn't so much say, serve as if you were serving Christ. Serve as if you were servants of Jesus. Serve as servants of Jesus. You really do have a boss who's watching you, one who really is paying attention to what you do. You really are, as you seek to intentionally do good to others, whether they recognize it or not, uh, whether they respond the same way today as they did yesterday, you really are serving Christ. You are not just a pawn in the hands of somebody else who happened to show up with more power than you did. You work for someone else. You work for somebody that you can't see yet, but who can see you? And the person that you work for, the person that you really work for, is reliable and generous. Slaves and those who experience something like slaves need to understand the heart of the one that they really work for. That heart is expressed when Paul describes what slaves can anticipate from the master that they serve. Look at verse 8. It said, serve with intentional goodwill. Whatever it is that you do, it all counts. And here's what I want you to know as you seek to do that. It's not always easy. Here's what I want you to know. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So Christian, Christian slave, you who feel like this is not accomplishing any more than maybe your daily survival, here's what you need to know. Jesus himself is keeping track of the good that you do for others, and he will pay you. This you will receive back from the Lord. Whatever good thing, every good thing counts. No matter how much the world or your master or another slave might look at this and say, you know what you're doing is is pretty irrelevant. It doesn't matter at all. Jesus does not say that. He says, every good thing that anyone does, I will pay you. This you will receive back from me. His economy works differently. He doesn't look so much at the financial value of what you do as the world sees it and say, well, pay you in that way. He looks at the heart. He looks for sincere, intentional goodwill toward others done in his name, and he will reward it. Now, imagine being in the place of a slave whose work is really marginalized or treated as um, unimportant, 
um, but yet is demanded anyway, and realizing that the one that you really answer to is the king, and he is watching, and he is watching your heart, and he will reward you. That's remarkably liberating when we know that. The more we know it, the more freeing it really is, and it really helps us to switch from asking the natural question, what do other people want from me, to the question, what do I want for other people? What, what good do I want to see brought into somebody else's life? Because Jesus says that every kind of good is worth it. He's watching, and he promises to pay. Now, I want to talk about that a bit, but first I want to make sure that we don't miss the qualifier that Paul gives in verse 8. I didn't read the last few words. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. This is for everyone. The promise that Jesus is keeping track of the good you do and will pay you is for everyone that trusts him, everyone that follows him. Did you, did you know that this week as you, as you did your work, whether it was work you were being paid for or work that uh, just your family needed you to do? Did, you, did the thought occur to you that your king and rescuer, Jesus, is keeping track and he will pay you for what you do? It, it, it doesn't necessarily come to mind naturally. I hope that it, if it didn't come to mind this past week, that it will come to mind for you this coming week. Because this is the thing that we are supposed to know that is supposed to fuel intentional goodwill on behalf of others when we work. Now, when, when, when we put it this way, that Jesus will pay you, then it naturally brings up the question, well, how? What, what is he going to pay me with? And you know, he has his reasons for not telling us very much in answer to that question. But what we can know is who. We can know what kind of master it is that we serve. What, what is the heart of the one who's watching us as we seek to do good for others? And we can know that he is reliable and generous. So when he makes this promise to us, and we say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to take you up on this promise, and I'm going to seek to do good for others in your name, and I'm going to trust you to return it to me, we can expect that when we stand before him someday, and he gives an account of the times when this actually happened by his grace, by his Spirit's power in our lives, he, he is not going to say, uh, Okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. I said I would pay you. So, um, okay, uh, let me see if I can come up with something to give you here. And, and maybe here, here, here's a crown. You can throw this at my feet in a few minutes. And yeah, okay, there's, there's what, you, what you get. That's not the heart of our master who promises to return good to us as we do good to others. His heart is generous. His heart is a heart that loves to give. And that will be reflected in the way that he compensates his servants. Many of you know that our, our son Ethan uh, just recently moved to Arizona, at least for a time, um, to work uh, in a six-month internship with the company that my brother works for. 
It's a, it's a, a niche technology company. Uh, my brother's worked there for some time. The owner of the company is, is a good friend of his. And it's been really interesting for me to hear about the, the philosophy, the mentality, the attitude of my brother's, now my son's, uh, boss. This is a, a company that seems like a very, very healthy place to work. And so I'm excited about the possibility of Ethan to work there. And I was talking to my brother about what is it that, 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 that sets this place apart from other places as a really good place to work. And he shared several different things with me. And one of them that he shared was the, the heart-level generosity that is demonstrated by, by Todd, his boss. Todd loves to have fun giving things away. He does this in many different creative ways. Sometimes he'll do it at, at a company party. He'll do it in a variety of different ways. And on the one hand, you can imagine a boss giving something good away and sort of standing off in the corner beaming because he feels so good about how superior he is in his generosity. Look at how good I am in the things that I'm giving to people. And, and in the way that my brother describes it, this is not Todd's attitude at all. There is a childlike joy in the opportunity to give to people. And you can just tell that he is thrilled when the, when the time comes to give away whatever it is that he's giving away. He loves to do it. He, he loves the anticipation of waiting for the time when this person is going to receive something good. And if that's true, uh, in a partial way, in Todd's heart, imagine the spring from which that stream flows, the spring of the heart of Jesus. He is reliable and he is generous beyond your imagination. You answer to him. He's watching. He will compensate you. The day will come when it becomes clear and it matters today. Paul then turns and he addresses masters. And he addresses masters in the same basic categories. He says, your attitude matters. You need to remember who your audience is. And you have something to anticipate from that audience. What, what is going to happen in the long run? Who are you going to answer to? And what's that going to be like? And as he begins to address masters... He makes what maybe is the most shocking statement in this whole passage. There are some things he says to slaves that would have been very uh, countercultural, but what he says to masters is even more so. Masters, he says, do the same to them. Imagine, imagine being a master, somebody who the, the whole culture looks at and says, you are superior and you're entitled, you're, you deserve better because you are better. And to, to hear Paul say to you, after he said to slaves, serve your masters with sincere intentional goodwill, he turns around and says to masters, do the same things to them. Now, Paul is not saying that those in the position of master and those in the position of slave ought always to do exactly the same things. He's not saying that these roles don't exist anymore. He doesn't say there's no more authority, no more submitting to authority. But he does say that attitudes and goals become exactly the same. That it ought to be the goal of masters 
to serve their slaves with sincere, intentional goodwill in the name of Christ as well. Now, sometimes that might look like a master saying, you know what? It's normally your responsibility to make me dinner, but I'm going to make you dinner tonight. Sometimes it might show up that way. Probably more often, it's going to show up in the form of a master using his position of influence, his resources, his advantages for the advantage of those who are in a position of serving him. Many, many different ways of doing this. It might be by simply trading places for a time, but there are many ways to use your resources to benefit those who really depend on you. So this would include things like masters dignify their work, show them that their work matters, certainly in the way that you respond to it, by by expressing gratitude for the things that they do, not merely taking it for granted by meeting their needs well, by looking for opportunities to allow those who serve you to experience some of the benefit of what they're doing, profit sharing. Allow them to experience this. Look for ways to do that. This, this is uh, another example that, that uh, my brother shared with me about what Todd does for his employees. Uh, He has a profit-sharing program, uh, an an opportunity for employees to share in the the net profits of the company. And the way that Todd has set this up, I think, demonstrates some real and generous wisdom on behalf of his employees. He says, you can participate in this profit-sharing program on one condition. And the condition is that every week you need to turn in to me a report of what, why, of why the things that you did made it worth it for me to pay you what I'm paying you. Now, that could sound really selfish, but I don't think that's the purpose behind what Todd is doing. Certainly, it does allow an employee to look at what they've done that week and to make some adjustments, perhaps to do things more profitably the next week. But part of Todd's heart in having his employees do this is to help them to understand how valuable their work is, to help them to look at at what they've done and to be able to connect their work and how it has accomplished good for someone else. This is a very enriching thing for his employees, and to connect that to the opportunity then to share in this profit-sharing program is a way of dignifying the work of his employees, a way of saying, I want you to grow in your ability to do what you do. I even want to benefit, perhaps someday, if the Lord calls us in different directions, I want to benefit your future employer by helping you to intentionally evaluate what you're doing and to recognize the value of it and to improve the value of it as well. He dignifies them and their work. Now, you might not own a niche technology company, but probably, probably for most of us, in some way, we do have economic influence over someone else. We have somebody who does some work for us and maybe doesn't have much of a choice. Maybe because of their life, it's the, it's the only thing that they can find to do. Uh, maybe it's 
Maybe it's, maybe it's a restaurant employee. Now, of course, we can't actually sit down and enjoy this right now. Sometimes we can, but maybe you're having somebody delivered to you. Maybe you're having somebody make food for you. How might we, even in that small context and even in a small way, dignify the work that they do? Well, well, we can do it by not being a stereotypically bad tipper. Think about this. Uh, the difference between a 10% tip and a 20% tip, when it really comes down to it, is not very much. Maybe it's a few dollars. That few dollars, uh, if you can afford to eat out once in a while, that few dollars probably does not mean nearly as much to you as it does to the person who's serving you. Here's a simple on-the-ground way for us to say to that person, you matter. You work, your work matters. I appreciate you. There is profit in all toil, and I want to acknowledge the profit in yours. The natural opposite of goodwill toward somebody who's working for you is threatening. And so Paul addresses that directly. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. This would have been normal in first century Rome. One commentator writes this, Slaves were never in a position to predict when the wrath of an owner would descend upon them and their lives and were thus conditioned by this perennial fear of physical abuse and maltreatment. Within that element of fear lay owner's capacity for the permanent control of their slaves. Within that same element of fear lies the capacity of managers to control their employees. What, what makes a picky, uh, unpredictable micromanager? I think in the end, what it, what it really is, is fear. It can be fear that is encased by entitlement and superiority, and inside of that case is a fear that maybe I won't actually get what I think I deserve and what I want. And perhaps you've experienced this working for a manager who deals mainly in threats. And probably what's at work there is fear that they will not get out of you what they hope that they will. And that may even be a fear that's driven by their own manager. Sometimes it's, this fear gets compounded in multiple layers of management in large organizations. Maybe you've been there. Uh, maybe you've been there as a manager as well. The sobering, steadying good news for slaves and for masters is this, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. You serve the same master. You and this person that you're tempted to control by threats you both serve the same master. You will both answer to him on the same terms. So for, for all of their differences, for all of the space between the resources of one person and the resources of another, in the end, a Christian master and a Christian slave stand in the same place, the same good place, before the same good master. That sense that you deserve more because you have more, 
that's the world's economy. Jesus doesn't buy that. Jesus works under a different economy. You know, masters, that he is both their master and yours who is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. He responds to what he sees, and he sees more than the world sees. He sees all the way to the heart. And whatever good anyone does, master, slave, anyone in between, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from this good master. This good master expresses his heart to his own disciples in John 13. When he does take on the what we could call a stereotypical role of a slave, the lowest of the low slaves in John 13, when Jesus takes a basin and he wraps a towel around himself and he comes to his disciples in the upper room and he begins to wash their feet. This would have been one of the least pleasant jobs that a slave could do. And as a result, the kind of job that a slave would have been looked down on for doing and yet required to do. And Jesus looks past all of that and he says, my heart is to do good for you. And every good thing matters. And so he washes their feet, and he does it as an example to them. He then says in John 13, 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So He says, follow my example. And his example first is to wash their feet and to do good for them. And in the scope of Jesus' work, that is a good thing and a relatively small thing because he does this to express the same heart that he will express when he goes to the cross for them. Again, work that looked shameful to the normal human eye, but work that did more good for us than anything we have done for each other. And it is the same heart in the work that he does for us now. He is our good master. He's the good master of every believer. He says to us, do the same things for them. And he does the same things for us. He watches for the same heart in us that he has toward us. And he promises to reward it. Father, Would you help us this week? Would your spirit bring to our recollection this week that our good master is watching, that our work is not marginalized, that we are not superior, that we all answer to the same good master who is reliable and generous. Would remind us of these things in Jesus' name.